Hello, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Laity Podcast. This is Andrew. I'm here with Stephen. Really excited to have you back with us for this episode. We have Adam Gustine joining us from South Bend, Indiana. Adam, welcome to the Laity Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Man, we're excited to have you on to talk about a number of things, but of course, most pressing, your latest book, uh, I think is about a month month old at this point, Becoming a Just Church and Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom. Stephen and I got to read the book and man, we're really excited. We both really loved it individually. And I know we're going to dive into all sorts of content here, but wanted to just start by giving you the floor. And uh, I'm, I imagine many of our listeners don't know you and would be great to to get to know you a little bit. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So uh, like you said, uh, my family and I, we live in uh, South Bend, Indiana, and we've sort of found our way here. Uh, it's a little circuitous, I guess, but um uh, we started in New York City as pastors and uh, community development uh, folks. We were working in an immigrant community there. Um, and through a number of different things, I ended up becoming the uh, director of ministry initiatives for our Mercy and Justice wing in the Evangelical Covenant denomination. And so my my job ended up being uh, being able to connect with churches and, and pastors and leaders across the country as they think about what it looks like to enact justice, to be involved in neighborhood development, um, and kind of at that congregational level. And so just being able to travel around and, and see those kinds of things really put a burden in me to, 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 uh, what I say it like, I, there's a, there's a part of me that felt very disconnected from the work, even though I was able to travel around and, and see a lot of different things. And so, uh, mm. we had an opportunity to, stay with the covenant, but in a very specific way, and to be able to relocate um, to South Bend, Indiana, which is where we were from before, and to to do some work on the ground. So all that to say is my role now with the covenant is, is specifically about uh, economic development and social enterprise. And so I work with congregations and their organizations to think through what would it look like to, to launch ventures like this in our neighborhood. And uh, that's what we're doing in South Bend. So I, I founded uh, Jubilee Ventures, which is an economic incubator uh, here on the west side of our city, kind of a historically, economically vulnerable community. And we're just trying to wrestle with um, some, some different approaches to economic development. So anyways, that's kind of a nutshell of what we're doing, but I'm uh, glad to be here. I'm going to ask a dumb question here for a second. Yeah. What, what do you mean by economic incubator? Yeah, well, that's that's not that's not a dumb question because a lot of people mean a lot of different things about it. So. Like, what exactly are you sitting on? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you incubating exactly? Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, so, in 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 our context, what we're trying to do is to incubate community business owners uh, because we were a town that uh, was very much economically driven by the automobile industry. Uh, and when that dried up, then uh, our town didn't have sort of the infrastructure to to be sort of resilient in that um, in that loss of that economic uh, engine. Uh, the way that we sort of envision being able to rebound is through the development of community owned business. Uh, and so, uh, well, one of the challenges that you find a lot in churches thinking about social enterprise is the question of ownership. Well. 
We can do a lot of good by creating jobs. We can do a lot of good by, you know, creating third spaces in the community. But at the end of the day, the church owns it or the organization owns it. That's not bad, but we're trying to push it a little step further and say, what would it look like to create businesses that actually launch business owners uh, and, and to push ownership all the way out to the margins? Um, Because we recognize that's where, not just for individual families or business owners, but the the economic uh, outlook for our whole neighborhood is going to change uh, if we if we're able to accomplish that. So that that's kind of what we mean. So we we hope to incubate entrepreneurs and, and business owners here in our neighborhood. And this is all like part of the denomination. That's kind of what's blowing my mind is that it's a this is a church initiative, but it's not at all. Nothing's going back to the church necessarily, right? Right. Yeah. So I, what I'm, what I, what I love about the Evangelical Covenant Church is their willingness to to be creative and to to innovate some new forms. And so uh, we launched a few years ago a project called Cove Enterprises, and that's what we do. Is we we launch what I'm doing here in South Bend. We launch those kinds of projects uh, all over the country. And so you know we've got a lawn care and a barber shop in Jackson, Mississippi, and a uh, a video production company in California and a coffee cart in Minneapolis and, you know, a t-shirt shop in New Orleans, um, all of which are not just businesses, but with an eye toward bringing some kind of, uh, shalom and wholeness to the community and their neighbors and stuff. So, uh, I, it's a really, really exciting thing to get to be a part of. That's uh, that's really fascinating. I'm actually not familiar with the domination. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued by that. I mean, that's uh, yeah, that's, yes. that's uncommon. It seems like because I mean, you're right. It does seem like um, justice in- initiatives. I mean, well, your book talks about this. They're often they're often an outreach strategy. So it's like, hey, mm-hmm. millennials are super into this whole justice thing. Like, let's mm-hmm. let's go do something with it, and um, sure. you know, maybe it gets more people in there. And but that, that, that's that's neat that it's kind of baked in, into the uh, the identity of the denomination. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the ways that you can talk about equity at like a big, you know, organizational level is to say that uh, how do we, you know, you the best part of my job is getting to walk in a neighborhood with a pastor who knows the names of the people who live there, mm. <laughs> um, and yeah. to recognize that this is a real neighborhood or parish pastor, uh, and that's not exclusive to pastors, but just by way of example, and I think that that those are leaders, those are people who who have historically, they, they understand the challenges of their, of their communities. They understand the opportunities that are there. And so for us to be able to be innovative in a way that's not about church growth, but about trying to innovate some solutions for people that have the answer already, uh, they just need a pathway or a channel to do it. I mean, that's kind of how I see my role, um, is some ways behind the scenes. And, uh, you know, Cove Enterprises was sort of born out of that to say, you know, economic development is critical in our areas of greatest, you know, in neighborhoods of poverty or, or whatever it may be. So let, let's create something that works there um, and isn't necessarily a church growth strategy in that sense. Yeah, love that. You, you, you said something I want to come back to here in a moment about the, the parish thing. I, I like I like that here in your book. But this is sort of to set the stage. Uh, you begin your book, which, by the way, I think we already said this. We loved it. It was awesome. Uh, Becoming a Just Church, Cultivating Communities of God's Shalom, just came out last month from IVP. Um, and and y- you begin it with this this idea, I think it comes from a Dr. Ortiz, yeah. uh, of the the hermeneutic of repentance. Mm-hmm. I wonder mm-hmm. if you can talk to us a little bit about that. What do you mean? What's uh, 
what, what's the what's the content of that of that phrase, and and what is it? What is it kind of aimed at? What is it trying to break down a little bit? Yeah, so I think it was on the first day I had uh, Dr. Ortiz. Manny Ortiz was a professor for a long time at Westminster Seminary uh, outside of Philadelphia, but he was teaching at, at Biblical Seminary when when I went there and, and did my doctoral program. And he he went up on the board and he and he drew this sort of descending spiral. And he said, you know, we often come to the text of Scripture, to the act of hermeneutics or, or the work of theology with this question, or this quest for answers. Um, but he said, you know, in, in an increasingly globalized world, an increasingly urbanizing world, in an increasingly unjust world, the quest for answers can make us arrogant. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, I would, I would rather us, rather than search for answers, to search for a better question. Um, and his point was that we come, we come with so much blindness, um, and that when we think we find answers, we, we don't know what we don't know. Uh, but to say that I'm so blind, I don't even know which is the right question to be asking. Can I find a better question? Can I find a more faithful way of approaching the text? Um, it sort of puts us in a posture of repentance, uh, a way of saying that there's much in me that has to be undone for me to even understand uh, the text of Scripture or to understand the work of theology, let alone to then engage it in the world uh, in a context of ministry. And so he was talking about our posture and our approach to the work of theology. And for me, I mean, I was the only white American in my cohort, um, and and it was this very long process of learning exactly what that meant. And I still think, you know, even almost 10 years later, I'm still trying to learn what that meant. Mm. Um, fully, but just to understand that, that my approach to this with the particular social trappings that I carry with me has to be sort of repentant and humble, um, because I don't know what I can't Mm -hmm. see. Um, and I think that was kind of what he was driving at. Uh, so that's certainly in terms of a single phrase or a, a concept or an idea has probably been the most significant formative piece of my journey. Why, why is it though, the sort of the foundation for, for the church becoming, you know, a, a, a just community, a community oriented towards justice? Yeah. Well, you know, I, if I were to, if, to frame it this way, like, um, Part of what it means to be the church is to be a community of God's shalom. I mean, that's where the title comes from, and we can get into that. Um, yeah. But the the idea in in its in its essence is that to be the church is to be a place where God's intentions are on display, mm-hmm. uh, where we're where we're a community of wholeness, where we interact with one another um, the way that God would intend. And you know, I think I talk about this a little bit in in the book is that one of the reasons why we even have the prophets. Is, is that God's people consistently fail to live out the ethic of shalom. Mm. They, they consistently fail to live justly as a people. And, uh, you know, one of the ways that I think we get off the rails uh, as the church is when we think that justice is something we just mm-hmm. do outside the door versus uh, justice being a kind of people that we are in the world, uh, uh, a vision that God has for us to inhabit in the world. And that engages the way that we act as the people of God, um, as the people of God, um, even before we would step outside our doors and engage our neighborhoods or our communities. So I guess I say that to mean that, that, uh, that God's people have always had the invitation to repentance as part of the work of justice. Um, I think anytime you read a prophetic 
peace, calling the people out on their sin. It's always about you're failing to live out God's justice. You're not living the way that you ought to be living. So, so fundamental to me uh, for the, God's people is that justice doesn't come from having all the answers. Justice doesn't come from uh, a posture of arrogance or superiority. Justice has to come from a posture of repentance. At least I think, I guess I would say that's part of the tradition that yeah. scripture gives us. And speaking for myself as a white uh, American man who raised in evangelicalism, then it's all the more important. Mm-hmm. So is, is it that, is it that in, in, in approaching the text for, for, for better questions that, that yeah. there's no, there's no point at which I can kind of just close the book and say, okay, um, I fed the poor. I guess we got justice. We're good. Um, and uh, right, exactly. all the while I can kind of continue in my, uh, you know, racial habits or, you know, the, I, all, all the ways that I, that I segregate myself off from other people. Um, mm-hmm. is that, is that mm-hmm. kind of the contrast? Yeah. I mean, you know, in some ways, in some ways it's like Paul saying, I haven't already obtained everything, but I keep pressing on. Yeah. So I think that's the same kind of idea is to say that if, if you've assumed you're a finished product or if you assume that you, you have the answer, um, then that, uh, that presumes quite a lot, um, as it relates to God and, and God's justice. And so I think what Dr. Ortiz was trying to emphasize, and, and at least the way that I try to live it out is to say, every time I discover a better or deeper or more faithful question, and almost always that comes because I have sisters and brothers who are able to help me see more clearly than I can see myself. Yeah. Every time I do that, I've learned something. So it's not like, it's not like to say you want a better question than a better answer doesn't mean you, you're never learning anything. I've always learned. I've just learned how to approach it more faithfully. Uh, and it always, I don't know, that sort of pushes you into a more humble posture uh, than something that might, might be a little more prideful along the way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I, I liked how you, in the book, you, you dis- described God and, and sort of the foundation for this um, for a community uh, to be an extension of God's shalom, can you kind of can you help lay a little bit of the, the sort of theological groundwork that you had um, done in the book for us, just talking sure. about um, the basis for the church's identity as a community of God's shalom? And and I'd ask you to interject, just define shalom for us. I think every yeah, listener knows true. of that word, but it'd be nice to hear you define. Right, it would be. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it. You know, when we're reading the 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 Bible or whatever, particularly in the old Testament, you know, you, Shalom is the translated peace and, and that that's a good translation, but sometimes, you know, at least in the English usage of that word, we think of peace as the absence of violence. Um, and, and it is that, but that's, it's not merely that, um, and we get closer when we think about, uh, to say that a person is at peace, uh, is to say that everything is as it should be in them, you know, sort of an internal sense of I'm at rest, I'm at peace. Um, that gets closer because really the, the the great word that I think a lot of people use is, is wholeness. Um, Shalom is a, is a kind of wholeness. Uh, I've been involved with like the CCDA uh, Christian community development association for a long time. And, and John Perkins, you know, always talks about Shalom being a state where nothing is missing Mm -hmm. and nothing is broken. Um, so really then I think if you were to, you know, put a little, more theological language on that. You, you just say that, that Shalom is what God intends. Um, the world as God, uh, created it 
and the world that God is is remaking in Jesus is is a world of shalom. So, uh, but but I think that flows out of who God is. Um, and, it, and I talk about this in the book a little bit, and and I, and I hope this is clear when I say it out loud. Uh, it can get a little tripped up on my words sometimes, but if you think about the way that that the scriptures reveal God to us, is always it's triune. It's it's Father, Son, Spirit. Um, and, and I, and I don't think it's too much of a leap to say that, that the scriptures reveal God to us as a community, mm-hmm. that to say that God is three in one is to say that God has always existed in a kind of community. And the community is a community of shalom in God. Everything is as it should be. Nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Uh, there is no codependency in God. You know, everything is mutual and loving and and uh, whole. And so God has, I guess I would say, God has always existed that way. And to me, why, why, the reason why that's helpful is because it gives me a reason why God would even create the world in the first place. Um, because I, I think what we see in, in the, the stories in the opening chapters of Genesis and the creation of the world and, and, and the creation of Adam and Eve, is the God who exists as a community of shalom, just widening the circle of people mm. who get to participate in that. Yeah. So it once was three, and now it's five, if I could say it that way. You know, you, you have God saying it, it, it's not going to do for us to experience uh, shalom just as God, but we want to expand the circle and, and invite a people into this. And what, what you see, I think, throughout Scripture is that that's kind of what the people of God is always meant to do is to be a, a, a conduit through which God's shalom actually goes out to the world. Um, so when you, when you have that notion then that, that, that shalom is meant to be shared in a sense of community where nothing is missing and nothing is broken, uh, that helps understand the fall a little bit to me in a, in a, in a helpful way. That's at least helpful to me is, to see that in the fall, you have the breakdown of the community of Shalom, uh, the community where nothing is missing and nothing is broken. Well, now there are things missing and now there are things broken. Um, now the relations between the people who have been in this community are, are stilted and broken and not as God would intend, and thus enters a world where within one generation we can have murder. Um, so injustice is sort of bred in a community where shalom is broken down. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the world that we live in where you have God's intentions, but then you have the presence of injustice. And in some ways, then if you think about the fact that then God calls Abram and, and forms the people of God in the Old Testament, and he tells Abraham, listen, I'm going to bless you and you will be a blessing yeah. to the world. I don't think that's just like, I don't know, be nice to people. Right. I, I legitimately think that's God saying, no, my intention has always been a shalom community, and you're going to be the shalom community that puts my intentions on display in the world. And when you put those on display, my shalom will go out to the world. Um, they will taste what I intend uh, through the people of God. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, long story short, I mean, I think you see the same thing happening in the New Testament with the church. Uh, that the church kind of inhabits that. Um, we are a community of God's shalom where we are learning how to uh, 
be made whole again in Christ and to then put God's intentions on display in such a way that, that God's shalom goes out to the world. So I love it. Anyways, it was kind of a lot there, but I hope that. No, it does. And I love how you begin the book talking about this people, the people language and God, I think at one point you even say, and I, I was meditating on this, like God is in his very essence a people, which I thought was really, there's something specific that comes out. Like the individual thing is, is important. And surely there's, there's an individual Mm -hmm. element of this, but you do, and we don't need to go off on a rabbit hole here, but you do spend a bit of time kind of talking about sort of the hyper-personalization a little bit of kind of the, that we can fall into. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I love, uh, Oh, you say this at one point, I'm looking at the book right now and it says, you know, when you're a pastor, you, you would kind of intentionally include the article a, when you'd cast a vision. So we're not just people following Mm. Jesus, but we are a people following Jesus. And this identity Mm. around a particular alternative community, which is something you talk about, um, that God shows up in a, in a significant way, certainly a way that we see expressed biblically when we are living in this Shalom community that frankly can't be experienced just as an individual. Um, and yeah, I, I, yeah. I love that. Um, I think you highlight, there's a number of specific things I think that you highlight that really challenges the sense of kind of hyper-personal individualism in, uh, in the church. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the, the things that is, is most challenging is that, that that individualism is not just in the church. I mean, that's, a, mm. that's in the water right. of, of, um, uh, white and Western culture. Um, and so in some ways we, as white and Western churches, evangelicalism as a, as a whole sort of culturally has adopted this in many ways. Uh, there's certainly non-white streams of evangelicalism that aren't necessarily like this, but in general, what you would refer to as evangelicalism is uh, dominantly individualistic. And it might be a chicken or the egg thing, but I do think that it's just sort of an uncritically adopted posture. Um, but so much of our work around justice breaks down around the question of individualism uh, and our inability to see ourselves as bound up with other people in any sort of actual meaningful way. So how do you, how do you see that individualism manifest um, in evangelicalism? And, and in particular, I mean, your book, you talk a lot about this, in, in white evangelicalism. Yeah. Well, I mean... <sighs> I mean, you just sort of like poke around and you'll find something. But I mean, I think about, you know, 90% of the songs we sing are between me and God. Um, Most of the ways that we think of discipleship is in an individualist pursuit. Um, And and that's not to say those things are not important. But the question to me is when you say, well, look at how many Psalms are written in the first person singular. I was like, well, okay, does the psalmist understand their relationship with God just between them and God or as part of the people. And that's how they understand their individual identity. Cause I, you, I think you can make a really serious argument that none of the persons of the Trinity would ever articulate their in like Jesus, for instance, when he talks about who he is, never talks about who he is apart from his relation to the father, huh. uh, that, that, that Jesus identity was never individual primary. His personal identity was informed by his part in the larger whole. And we do the other way around. Uh, And when you do that in the church and when you shape Christian identity through the individualist lens, 
there is actually nothing that you can do to then uh, give credence to the idea that church is essential. That I mean, that's why you can go to church on your on your computer right. because <laughs> I don't need I don't need the church. That becomes an option mm-hmm. um, for me if that's something that's important to me. E- even participation in the community. Um, so the only way that we I think correct that uh, is to push toward understanding the fact that that actually scripture again and again and again and again says to be in Christ is to be a part of the people of God um, that that we don't have an individual identity in Christ apart from the corporate identity in Christ so uh, I mean I guess that's that that is an example but I think that's these are all like derivative factors that come back to this essential question yeah yeah it's reminding me there's these two excerpts if I could just read them for a second. I mean, this hit pretty hard. Um, and what, what I, I want to hear you unpack a little bit about this, uh, the, the discipleship component here that you're going to bring up. He said, you say, uh, we've discipled people to believe that faith is nothing more than a personal relationship with God, whereby I am saved. I discover my individual identity, discern God's unique purpose for my life and learn how my passions are things that God gave me to generally speaking, make the world a better place framed in the indiv- individualistic narrative of our society the church then can never be anything more than a vendor of religious goods and services that distorts the church life into a consumptive experience. When church operates in this manner, and here you quote from, um, uh, this is, uh, oh my goodness, um, I Anabaptist theater. It's I, I, not Hauerwas, is Hauerwas, good grief. Yeah, yeah. Hauerwas. Um, the, church became, uh, the church became one more consumer-oriented organization Existing to, cur- existing to encourage individual fulfillment rather than, rather than being a crucible to engender individual conversion into a body. I mean, man, that hits hard. That's, that's, oof. Yeah, when you read it out loud, it feels like a kind of a throat punch. <laughs> <laughs> that's good, yeah. man. Oh, but then, yeah. then, then you flip the page and you got another one. You got the experience of Jesus' salvation includes shedding my individualism yeah. in favor of a new corporate identity. I mean, this is some serious stuff. So how do you... What does that What does that look like when it takes flesh and blood? What does it actually look like to shed my individualism when I'm just steeped in an individualistic society? Well, and it, it, it's interesting that you. I'm glad you brought that up because there are certain parts in the book where um, I'm hoping people hang with me because we have there are things that I think we have to do that don't feel like justice work, um, but until we start to do them, we're going to struggle with justice work. Uh, and this yeah. is this is one of those things, helping people feel that they're part of a larger whole, um, and that they that they we we learn how to shape people's identity through through the larger whole. Um, justice will become, and there's a number of reasons for that, but justice is very difficult uh, unless we're able to to sort of do that. So, you know, like one one big example that I that I could give you is, you know, you think about how does how does a person make a big decision in their life. Um, in, in in very few contexts that I've ever been in, would a person s- submit a big decision to their their family of faith uh, to say, "We're wrestling with this question. We need to discern this, uh, and we want to hear from God. And we know we can't hear from God unless we hear from you." Um, w- what more often mm-hmm. happens is, you know, as a pastor, I have somebody show up and be like, "Well, I'm moving out of state uh, next week." Right. And, um, 
you know, I'm still, I'm, st- I'm not quitting my job. I'm just moving to a different state. And I'm going to commute in. Um, and they sort of just drop the bomb on you. And the, the question to me is not, do, do I, do I as a pastor get to have a say in everybody's life decisions? That's not the point. Uh, the point is, um, until we are able to see our lives and our individual decisions is bound up with the health of the whole body, um, well, then it's going to be very difficult for me to feel the pain of another person who might be experiencing injustice. And mm. so huh. I think there's a real strong connection between the individualist nature of evangelicalism and the impulse to ignore the pain of people who are not like us in evangelicalism, um, where it's very rare to, say, in a church service on Sunday, be in an evangelical space and hear about, say, police shooting or uh, something something like that. And I think it's because we're, we're sort of insulated from other people and other people's lives, and we've insulated ourselves from other people and other people's lives. Um, so, you know, that's a small, that's a small example, but what would it look like to, to be in a process of saying, well, we want to be a community of communal discernment. Uh, we want to offer our own mm-hmm. life decisions up to the discernment of the community. Um, that may, I, I say that small, that sounds pretty radical yeah. actually when I, when I, when you say it out loud. Um, but, but until we until we are willing to be open handed with our own lives, it'd be pretty hard to lay down our lives for for somebody else, you know. Man, that convicted me when you were sharing that because I feel like I'm on the verge of some specific kind of personal family decisions, mm-hmm. even just logistically where we live, where we go to church, where a number of things. Um, not so much where we go to church, but just some other life things. And it is it's easy like my default and that calls people to really that what you're talking about really calls people to trust. Mm-hmm. And it is this human. I'm like, okay, yeah, I could go to these people and ask their opinion, but frankly, I'm going to know better. Than, I mean, honestly, I'm like, yeah. I know my situation better than they right. do. I'm sure they'd have some sort of personal peace tied in. Like, of course they don't want me to leave their church or of course they don't want me to move. And, right. you know, so they're not going to get it. And that's, it's convicting to kind of shift gears a little bit. I, so I think this is also foundational and you mentioned early in the book, kind of even as we talk about this, using the word justice and talking about some of the specifics around white evangelicalism and a number of things, you talk about, you, you have this great phrase called, you know, partisan antagonism. Mm-hmm. And you say, you know, in the church, what's challenging, and you say, you know, one of the bigger mistakes you made as a pastor is like this attempt to talk about justice issues with, without starting with what are these partisan antagonisms that immediately use the word enslave us, but cause us to rush to judgment and for the blinders to go up, mm-hmm. frankly, even when, when we hear specific language. And it doesn't matter if you're left, right, middle, mm-hmm. what have you politically, mm-hmm. right? Because there's everything on every side of the aisle that is immediately triggering mm-hmm. in some way, whether you're talking about immigrants, whether you're talking about President Trump, whether you're talking about some sort of you know policy around um, you know welfare state or any number of things. Mm-hmm. And w- w- when you talk about the prophetic community, this alternative kind of society and this exile, you know, reality of the church, you know, our calling is of course primarily to the way of God's shalom in the world. But if we don't start by naming these things that we can, you know, frankly pledge allegiance to mm-hmm. 
before Jesus, um, you run into some major issues. So could you define for us what you mean by partisan antagonism and yeah. give give our listeners a little bit of insight? Because I'd hope we can all sort of check some of that at the door for the next 30 <laughs> yeah. minutes or so, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah, even for sure. just so we can hear you. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, in some, in some cases, none of us can, um, because right. the... When I, so when I talk about a partisan antagonism, I mean, the, the world that we live in now is rooted in partisan antagonism. Um, and so uh, most of our, I, I guess I would say political identity, but, but I guess I mean that in kind of the broader sense of politics. So most of our identity, social identity or whatever, is very often defined by what right. we are against. And all you have to do is look at political rhetoric to see that that it is actually a breath of fresh air when somebody is defining what they are for, um, because it is often like we strengthen our base by defining what we're not and what we're against and what's bad. Um, and so when you get into a world where that happens, um, you have a, uh, a culture of sort of demonization and we use demonization to create community. If that sounds crazy, but, but if you think about it, like that's what cable news channels do. Uh, they demonize the other side. And if you agree with them, then you're sort of part of this in group, um, over here. And so you create these massive walls of hostility, uh, that erect between people. Now, what happens is the reality is because we have been so deficient in the church, and talking about any of this stuff, uh, God's shalom and justice, and what is the the public face of who we are, and what does it mean to be the people of God as it relates to issues like poverty or um, inequity and, and these kinds of questions? Because we've been so deficient in that, um, I'd say at least two, if not three, generations of Christians and evangelicals in particular have grown up with the. Their, their theological imagination being shaped by the partisan antagonism mm-hmm. of our culture and not by the actual, you know, gospel. Um, and so what happens then is that, okay, so now, now we, in evangelicalism we care about justice, and so we start, we start talking about it. But we talk about it, and no one has like a mental set, and this would be myself to include, I'm not excluding myself, like we're default now, our mental set is to like program these words into certain compartments and that's what this means. Mm-hmm. And when you say that, this is what you mean. Um, and so if you are, you know, you're finding community among folks who might be more conservative. If somebody uses the phrase undocumented immigrant, um, it becomes very important to you to make sure that they use the word illegal. Um, likewise, mm-hmm. uh, if, if you are somebody in a more like liberal or progressive or, you know, politically and somebody uses the phrase pro-life yeah. to, to describe the fact that they're, you know, against abortion, it becomes very important to you to like chastise that person for not being pro-life from womb to tomb or something like this, you know? Right. And I'm not saying that necessarily that you, we shouldn't have that. I mean, I'm, I am pro-life womb to tomb. Like that's, that's what I think. But what I mean is to say that when I hear you say that, I am, I frame it and I tell myself a story about what you mean and, and all of this. So what, what then in the church then is like, so I stand up to preach about something. Um, you know, one of the best examples I could get was one time I was trying to give people 
an understanding of what the the difference was between in the in the first century temple between the the court of the Jews and the court of the Gentiles in the temple, and you know it's it's literally walled off. It's a separate section of the temple, and Gentiles are allowed here, but not over there. And I said, just think about 1960s U.S. like separate but equal Jim Crow laws in the South, right? Like separate drinking fountains, separate waiting rooms. Like that's what was happening. And when I got done preaching, like I was two steps off the the stage, and I had somebody in my face mad about bringing politics into the pulpit. And that was all I had said. Um, and, and the, the interesting thing to me was like, it never once crossed my mind yeah. that I was being controversial in that illusion. I was like, this is a historical example. It will help people understand. But what I, you know, learned sort of along the way then and after the fact is that what I had done was I had triggered the antagonism without giving people any sort of pathway to, to deal with it. Um, and so what I thought would be just an anecdote became like created a further division. So what I think we have to be able to do is to not necessarily stop talking about issues, but to be willing to till the soil much more intentionally offline and with people in much more um, disarming spaces than, than just preaching. Uh, otherwise, the antagonisms, I think, will keep growing. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, especially for communities where where there is significant diversity. Um, because mm-hmm. I think even like our imagination for justice can be so different yeah. uh, when we're just on our own or kind of in our own little you know homogenous group. Um, how do you how do you see this uh, working in terms of the church's pursuit of justice? How do you see? Uh, and, and, and specifically like sort of the path forward, how do you ha- having named these antagonisms that are at work in, in a faith mm-hmm. community, how do you then kind of create language that, that, or give language that, that leads the church on a path towards becoming a just people? Yeah. Well, in, in some ways, I think that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to aim to do or give, give people tools to language to think about, um, not necessarily like, oh, this word's controversial, so use this word. But what we don't have is a theological imagination that's, that's strong enough to bear up under all of that antagonism. So we've got to find some way to sort of feed our own theological imaginations as it relates to justice. And so um, in, in my experience, I think you've got to take that offline of, say, Sunday morning or something like that and bring together groups where you can discern the scriptures on the scripture's own merits um, and, and not necessarily be really intentional about convincing someone of your own political viewpoint or, or this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. But it, what's amazing to me is the way that people's hearts and minds open up to this conversation when they encounter God's heart for justice as narrated in scripture. Um, to me, I guess that would be evidence that that's never, they've never seen it before that they've literally never heard it. Um, and so to, and so to wade and to sort of uh, swim in the Isaiah waters and Amos waters, and then to think about, uh, the way that God, uh, works out justice through the book of acts and, you know, all, all these different, all these different places that you can go and you see God's unbelievable heart for, I mean, I think Tim Keller calls it the quartet of the vulnerable through the old Testament, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant and the poor, 
uh, to see it all over um, has in almost every case um, that I've done something like this really opened people up to the conversation. And then you start to ask questions. Well, like, well, who are these people in our world today? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and in, and no person who's ever sat in a space like that with me, and it's not me doing it. I just think we create these kinds of spaces. Like those are not the people that get blinded by their antagonisms. These are people who I disagree with on a number of issues um, but we, we are now in a community where we can wrestle through these issues and it's not antagonistic. Yeah. It's a legitimately like you want what God wants and I want what God wants. And because we come to this, not knowing what we don't know, we need each other. We need to be able to hear what the other people are saying and, and wrestle through this together. I love that. I love in the book you mentioned that our, as a church, like our, our political mm-hmm. imaginations need to be more formed by our sort of embeddedness in community together and our connections with one another. And so that what I, I begin to care about what my brother cares about because we're in community, even though he looks different from me, even though, you know, we agree on nothing politically, what's his concern is my concern because we're in community. Uh, But instead we're often, yeah, we're just, we're, we're shaped by, you know, Facebook algorithms and, 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 you know, Mm -hmm. cable news. Right. Yeah. And even to tie it back into the individualist thing, so many of us are trained to think about our politics through the individualist enterprise. So I vote according to my own self-interest. Mm. Um, and w- what what benefits me and the way that I see the world first? Um, but wow, it, it seems to me that... Well, even to think about like, well, this is about the parable of the, the Good Samaritan where Jesus is unpacking this story about what it means to love our neighbor. Um, here's a guy who, who who chooses the path other than self-interest, right? The priest and the Levite choose self-interest for whatever yeah. reason. They're moving on. Um, here's a guy that's, that's paying the price to bind up the wounds of his neighbor. Um, and that's the guy that's the neighbor that's loving his neighbor authentically. So what would it look like if our political agenda took that same shape? Like, I'm not going to vote based on my own self-interest. I'm going to vote based on the interests of the neighbors I'm called to love. And would that change anything? In many cases, I think it would. Um, And even if it didn't change who you ended up, like, you know, pulling the lever for, uh, it certainly would change the way that we think about um, political engagement. I mean, that's not really like the essence of, uh, you know, the, the single thread, but I do sort of at the end start to say, well, then I think politically, like, what if, what if our political agenda was shaped by the pain of our neighbor and not, not my sense of my own rights and responsibilities, you know, like my rights as a, as a citizen. Well, I lay those things down too, right? If I, if that's what love is to lay my life down for a friend to pay the price to see my neighbor made whole, um, then that should shape my politics too. You know, yeah. for what it's worth, dude. That is heavy. That's convicting, awesome. well, I man. I mean, I can't even yeah. like. Can I even name the pain so of my neighbor? True, yeah. right? No, but I'm here. It's like this is right. Yeah, absolutely. It's, I'm so like amening right now. Yeah. Well, it is. It is. It is a challenge, and I think, I, you know, when I, I talk to people about justice, it can. It's an overwhelming. There's so many things wrong in the yeah. world. So many uh, places where people are in pain. Um, but, um, 
you know, I guess I'd say rather than like choosing an issue, like I can choose my neighbor and that's what makes it, that's what brings it down to earth, Hmm. um, is to say, uh, what I'm going to care about is what my neighbors care about because that's what I'm called to do. So then to like extend that to the church, then that's why I think, you know, parish oriented or neighborhood oriented churches play such a vital role in the work of justice. I mean, I don't know if they're, are they going to write legislation? I don't know, but they're the churches that are most primed and positioned to understand the pain of people at the margins because they're already there. They're already uh, engaged. Yeah. yeah let, let's, let's transition to that. That's so good. So t- you talk about this in the book, give us, our listeners a kind of an oversight, this parish model versus kind of the alternative. What, what is this? Wh- how does this look like even structurally and, and why do you advocate for that, that kind of focus? Well, I mean, there's, <laughs> there's a number of reasons why I advocate for it as opposed to other alternatives of church. Um, we can get into that later. I guess I just would start by saying I think there's incredible virtue in church being willing to be for the place it's put. Um, for in the sense that, um, that what I want for me and my kids, I want for all the kids in the neighborhood. I think that's Jonathan Brooks, um, who wrote wow. a great book called uh, Church Forsaken. I think he uses that phrase, like what I want for my kids, I want for all the kids. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the community. And so, you know, I, the, the world of community development and justice, I mean, part of like the foundational text for that world is Jeremiah 29, where God is speaking to the, to the people of Israel when they're in exile in Babylon. And God says a number of things there, but, but he, he says, listen, you're going to be there for 70 years. So I want you to build houses and settle down. I want you to plant gardens and eat what they produce. You should have marry and have kids, raise them up, marry them off so that they will have kids. So he's talking about this like generational vision. You're going to live in this place that you probably don't want to live for three generations. So do the things that you're called to do there. Don't just like sit on your suitcase waiting to go back to Jerusalem, Mm. but like put down roots in this place. And then while you're there, God says, seek the, the peace, seek the shalom and the prosperity of the city that I've sent you to. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will, will prosper. So this is this idea that we were talking about at the beginning. It's very hard with an individualist lens to see myself as bound up with my neighbors, to see myself as part of this community. But that's what God's saying to Israel. Listen, if the city prospers, you will prosper. Your fortunes are tied up together. So it's wow. pretty important uh, that you see that and see that your role here is to extend my shalom to this very pagan place. Um, and, and to do so actually by pretty ordinary things like building your house and having kids and raising them and that kind of thing. Um, so when I think about that passage as this, like what it means to be the people of God in exile, the people of God, not in the halls of power, but at the margins of society, I think, well, who are the congregations most positioned to do that? They're the congregations that have been part of these communities forever and have been, you know, ingrained and ingratiated in the community. Um, And you know you're in one of those churches because they don't talk about the neighborhood like it's a foreign place. (laughs) They talk about the neighborhood like... There's no invasion there. Right. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Like, we don't have to send send invite letters to our neighbors because we 
they got, we walk by him. We talk to him. We know him. His name's Steve. But, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> we work together. Um, that that kind of blurring of the line between the church and the community, I think, happens very naturally in a church that has that kind of DNA. Um, I think that kind of blurring of the line in a church that doesn't have that kind of DNA is like a foreign language. Um, mm. It's very difficult uh, to to become part of the neighborhood in an ordinary way. Uh, anytime a church goes out into the neighborhood, it's actually very outside the ordinary. Yeah. Um, you know, like the, and I'm not saying anything bad about this. <laughs> like the inflatable bouncy house is not an ordinary thing. <laughs> that's not, that's not <laughs> what happens on a Tuesday. Um, uh, but that's how I, you know, like that's how churches get out into the neighborhood. That's fine to do. I don't mean that's a bad thing. I just mean like, but that's a sign that something is still blocking us from being fully, fully invested. Right. And I, I should no, say, I'm pro bouncy That's important. That's, that's a good debate. <laughs> I wasn't going to take it there, but I'm glad you did. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I like, uh, I like so from, I mean, the, the parish model, and, and, and you, you framed it in Jeremiah 29. Can we go back then to, mm-hmm. to what, you, what you talked about in the book with this sort of exilic identity? that we need to take mm-hmm. on as the church. If we're going to be living in Babylon, so to speak, and mm-hmm. uh, seeking the the well-being of Babylon, because our well-being is bound mm-hmm. up in theirs, how do we yeah. then also maintain our identity as non-Babylonians? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a good question. I think uh, depending on our like cultural persuasion, we our, our temptation toward being Babylonian will look a lot different. But... Um, I think about the last hundred years of evangelical history and how much of it is characterized by the desire to be invited into the hall of power um, and how mm. difficult it is to want more than anything to be invited into the hall of power and to be faithful to God at the same time. I mean, that, that's a very difficult balance to strike. I, I'm, I was thinking today, even can I think of a movement that was like, we want to be in the Oval Office. And that was authentically true to the, you know, the vision of God's kingdom. I, that's difficult. I mean, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of everybody's story. Right. But I say that to say that that the people of God in the Old Testament were literally exiles, but then they were also like culturally exiled. They were oppressed. They were marginal. They were nobody was nobody cared what they were doing because they were insignificant um, people in the global scheme. Same with the church in the New Testament. Uh, they were marginal people. They were pushed out from places of power and were forced to work out their faith at the margin. And uh, so when we read the scripture, I think maybe at least in American evangelicalism, we forget that all of scripture has been written from a place of essentially cultural oppression. Um, and you've been, you're mm. writing from people who've been under the thumb of people in power. And so, it, it, the, A, the scriptures become much more radical than when you think about that. But then also, it's like there's actually very little credence to want to be powerful and influential. Uh, the scripture gives us no like basis for that. Um, rather, uh, Peter picks up on that exilic tradition to say that the church is a community of exiles. The thing about being an exile 
is if you think about what it means to be an exile in exile or be a refugee is to say that you have been you are displaced you are a a resident of a foreign land and you kind of live as a foreigner and people are suspect of you like that's just what it means to be a refugee these days well in some ways yeah. that should be what the church comes across like it's it's at some level is to to we are citizens of a different kingdom uh, and so we are, as Peter says, as foreigners and exiles then. So we live in the world in that same sort of foreign uh, identity. And it's also one that will be distrusted. It, it's one that will exist. I mean, society doesn't care about the essential commitments of our faith. Um, I think we're kidding ourselves if we think that that's true. Um, that doesn't mean we can't have influence. I just think that means that our influence is not going to come by the way that maybe we've been trying to do that for a real long time. Wow, man, mm. you must like some Hauerwas. I, you know, I, 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 I joke. I have actual Anabaptist friends, uh, so I can't say that I'm an actual Anabaptist, but I'm kind of like an armchair uh, Anabaptist. I, I think that I, there's, yeah, the, yeah I, that. I think Hauerwas and the Anabaptist vision for what it means to be the church as an alternative community um, is really important. I love the it. reason why is because. Because if that's if we take that identity on, we're a community of exiles. So we're not even going to try to like grasp for power as the world defines it. Yeah. That gives us the ability to then hold a mirror up to society with integrity. Like we can hold a mirror up and say, "This is who you are." Um, and and then at the same time, because we are an alternative community, we are cultivating the alternative to that. So like we're holding a mirror up, and at the same time, we're saying, "But this is what God yeah. would want." Um, so that, that's an important distinction and, and, and maybe sometimes we're so caught up in trying to gain society's acceptance that we forget that that's the essential vocation of the church. So th this seems like mm -hmm. the, just the perfect spot to talk about cool kids and franchise <laughs> church. Okay. Get it. Uh, I'll just let you take yeah. it from here, man. Yeah. Well, um, so the... <sighs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, when I think about the way that maybe churches are designed um, to gain acceptance from society and maybe some of the ways that we miss the boat, um, and there's a number of things that I think go into that, but the, the, the franchise church model, uh, the idea that we are attempting to the same way I want to put it, you know, six or seven Chipotle's in town to put six or seven, you know, X brand church in town. Yeah. Um, th those are congregations that are sort of built on a DNA that is very difficult to authentically care for people who live life at the margins. Um, because you cannot franchise unless you are, bringing in revenue, yep. if, I can, no, if totally. I can put it that way. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, folks at the margins aren't um, going to generate the kind of revenue that it takes to do that. And so either those people that are in your community, the temptation will be to value them less. They're, they have a lower net worth, um, both financially and in their humanity, because we're, we value them less. Or uh, we'll avoid those communities altogether um, because of that. So um, this is not, it, it's not 
like an intentional thing necessarily, but something about the DNA of a franchise model can at least tempt us to uh, keep the folks most at the margins at arm's length um, and to have a community that's not set up to receive receive them and to, to work those things out real well. Similarly, though, I mean, I think hipster church kind of does the same thing. Uh, and to be honest with you, I, I owe a lot of my thoughts about this specifically in the book to a book by David Leung called Race and Place. Um, hmm. And he actually just touches on it a little bit in the book. Um, but it, oh, it, what I, I was always struggling a little bit with this um, – if franchise church is maybe a generation ago, that hipster church is kind of like the way mm-hmm. that looks yeah. now. Um, it's not necessarily the attempt to franchise, but it's an attempt to be cool. Um, and to put a generally sort of progressive relevant veneer on the church experience as a way of reconnecting with, um, as a way of like reconnecting with millennials or something like this. I think you mentioned that earlier. Um, so that, but what what happens in a place like that is that that cool is sort of self-selecting also. And if you can't hang with the culture of cool, then it becomes a rather exclusive vibe pretty quickly. Um, and that as people sort of pursue that kind of aesthetic for the church experience, that people who can't, people who just aren't cool the way that is being defined, um, find themselves increasingly pushed out. And LeYoung has this really powerful phrase about how hipsterism finds itself sort of locked in a constant state of exclusion. By defining cool, I define at the same time what is not cool. Uh, And because cool is in, if you are not cool, you are out. Um, And so it becomes a place where you have in-groups and out-groups. It actually becomes pretty easy to sort of center the preferences. So this is what the two things have in common. Franchise churches and hipster churches tend to center the preferences of uh, people who are like upwardly mobile or people who live on kind of, I guess what I would say is like the social high ground. Um, People who live on the social high ground get favored status in those kinds of congregations. Mm. Um, and, and it's not even something we have to try to do. So I don't want it to sound like I'm being like, you know, finger wagging in that. It's just to say that that's part of the DNA of both of those kinds of places. And so it would be really important for us to, to wrestle with that if we're trying to think about questions of justice. Ugh, dude, I go to a hipster church. <laughs> and the problem is Sorry. we like it. Yeah. No, like this is tough because... Yeah. Yeah, and not and not self-identifying, like right. I guess that's what makes them. Yeah. They would never self-identify. Um, yeah, you you can't. Yeah, not so to. I don't know what to do with that, to be honest with you, because I'm like thinking. So is the is the alternative? I know this isn't what you're posing. I'm just talking out loud to make it relevant for myself. I, you know, mm-hmm. I think. I could stop going to this church and go to like a poor black church in my neighborhood because it's it's mm-hmm. frankly. Mm-hmm. And I'm using all the wrong political language, but frankly, a poor African American, have, mm-hmm. you know, concentrated part of the neighbor, the yeah. city. Um, and then I'm like, I could do that. I could also go, but I prefer mm-hmm. not to, for probably obvious reasons, purely from like a comfort, you know, what, what's comfortable. 
Um, and then sure. even logistically, and then my family, you know, then the kid and family thing is a whole other deal. But how does one, like, obviously these churches don't, don't go out and say, Hey, we want to be, well, actually some do, I, you know, we're going to be the hipster church on the corner. Like, I think there is sort of an evolution. I think about even my own church, which is really birthed out of, um, you know, a movement in the city heavily with college students. And then those college students got married and then those sure. married people had kids. And now you have younger, educated, urban population, many of which would be designated or seen, yeah. you know, cool people. Um, but it's not like, like, what do you right. do now that like, if you're in that culture, like, how do you begin to not get caught in the traps? Sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is where the question of discipleship comes in. Um, and, and it was, it's very, very important that like we get very precise on discipleship. Um, when I think about the life of Jesus and the way that Jesus invited people into life with him, life in the kingdom, um, it was never the same. Uh, the, the pathway of discipleship was different depending on where you were standing mm-hmm. in the world when you received that invitation. What I mean is so where you're standing in the world, like, I use the phrase social location and, you know, the particulars of who you are and, you know, your, your, your culture and your socioeconomic status, and your education and all of that. Uh, Jesus, I think you can make an argument. That's the only thing that Jesus took into account when he would speak to somebody in terms of how it is he invited mm. them into the kingdom. Uh, and it's like a really good example is the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler is an upwardly mobile guy. And he's upwardly mobile, he's very successful, he's highly accomplished. And so he defines his spiritual faithfulness by the same values that he uses in every other part of his life. He's accomplished. I'm keeping all the rules. I'm doing everything perfectly. Um, so Jesus then is like, well, okay, sell everything you got and give it, give it mm-hmm. away. Um, he never tells a poor person to sell everything they have and give it away. Um, he celebrates the widow who puts in the two little coins. Uh, had the rich young ruler given that exact amount, he would have said, that's not sufficient. Um, so Jesus takes our social location wow. into account. And, and that narrates the path of discipleship. So the way that I say this is like, the gospel is the same story no matter what. But where we hear it from changes how we respond to it, um, which would make sense, right? Like I'm sitting in my basement right now. If I were to go find my wife, I have to walk upstairs. Uh, if I was upstairs, I'd have to walk downstairs. I'm still trying to find my wife, but I'm moving in a different direction. So when I think about something like Philippians chapter two, where you have this story of Jesus or this, this image of Jesus, Paul says, uh, in your relationships with one another, what, be like Jesus, who, though he was God, didn't consider equality with God something we grasp, but makes himself nothing. So I think about Jesus is like the definition of a high ground person. Uh, he, though he was God, uh, he has all the rights and privileges of the royalty of the throne of heaven. And he divests himself of that. And becomes, instead of being upwardly mobile, he becomes downwardly mobile uh, in order to take up residence among all of us, you know. Uh, And he takes up residence among all of us, uh, and that is a posture that he takes. He he becomes humble, taking on the form of a servant. So when I, I, all is not lost when I, you know, when I talk about 
whatever, franchise church or Christianity for cool kids or anything like this. I think the path of discipleship is to say, hey, upwardly mobile folks. I mean, that's me. I'm, I'm upwardly mobile. I have to own that and name that honestly. The path of discipleship is downward mobility for the sake yeah. of my neighbors. That's the path of discipleship. Um, Jesus never calls a poor person to that same movement. Um, he celebrates, he lifts up, he, uh, uh, creates like resurrection life right away, uh, in that sense. Um, so we've got to be able to, to narrate those things differently. And in a church like, you know, you're describing or churches like I've been a part of and part of now, I think that's a really important piece of it is to not create a one size fits all discipleship strategy. Cause I don't think that exists or is, is particularly helpful. Because what ends up happening then is we create a one-size-fits-all discipleship, and all of the particulars of who yeah. we are gets, gets whitewashed. N- n- none of that fits the, the schema anymore. So it's possible to follow Jesus, and Jesus doesn't have anything to say about my money anymore, because that, that, there's no way to fit that into a uh, one-size-fits-all program. I, uh, I, I love this quote here you have. You said, ultimately, it'd be hard to imagine a franchise church or a congregation of cool kids meaningfully expressing and extending God's shalom and into the world because it'd be difficult to convince a consumptive community to embrace a costly way of life. Um, that's a, I, 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 yeah. I think that's, that's like my hesitancy. I, I get asked a lot, like, so are you a progressive Christian? Like, are you, Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I mean, I've probably I've probably moved more in that direction on a number of things than I did, I don't know, ten years ago. But sure. the one thing I feel like I just can't quite shake, and I don't want to let go. I guess about, about my more conservative sensibilities is it, it just it there is there is something there is something pretty radically costly, like about the Sermon mm-hmm. on the Mount, that just won't mm-hmm. be co opted by progressive mm-hmm. ideals, conservative ideals. And I worry that if I g- get too locked into either one of these things, I'm going to lose my ability to, to hear, like to have, I'm, I'm going to lose the ears to hear what you just is really saying. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and then to live that costly life. That's challenging, man. That that's a, uh, this book was, was just, it's been awesome. My wife and I have been having really good conversations about it. I bought a copy from my pastor. We got coffee and talked about it. I mean, this is, this is, mm-hmm. I highly recommend it. Uh, thank you so much for for writing this, this yeah. and for spending you know this hour or so with this. Um, I think we're probably yeah, I guess we are coming up on time here. So um, I went by quick. <laughs> Anything yeah. you want to highlight, Adam? That you, we didn't hit. I mean, no, there's plenty we didn't hit on. Hopefully, it's enough to get people to to buy it and check yeah. it out. Of course, we'd recommend that. Sure. Well, I guess what I would say is that I, I. I the hermeneutic of repentance is really important because I, I'm even hearing myself as I'm talking that the critique is, is there in, in what I'm talking about here. Mm-hmm. There's certainly a lot of critique, but um, to me, the frame of saying we come all to, we, we come to this in search of better questions means that, yeah, like, yeah, we want to see what we need to see on this, but the right. point is not to throw stones like that. That to me is the thing, like the, the hope in a book, like this is to say, uh, let's think about a better question maybe, uh, than the one we're asking currently. Um, such that, that I, I don't know, I'm not saying, 
Yeah, I think my hope is that it's not just a, a lobbying of a different kind of antagonism mm-hmm. uh, into the church world, but to be able to say, no, let's speak honestly, because that's important. Uh, but but let's let's have this like hopeful vision that there are ways forward. Now they may be challenging, they may be you know tough mountains to climb, but um, but I think it's important to recognize that like the the point of all of this is such that we all learn together how to be the church together. And this is not a book with all of the answers to that, but it is saying like we, it's going to be hard for us to be. I think what God's calling us to be if we still stay committed to these. Um, essential things that seem to have defined us for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Adam. That's, that's, that's yeah, absolutely. This is really good. Well, anything else, Stephen, you want to hit or does that make sense to wrap? No, I mean, I think that's it. We'll, we'll of course put the links in the show notes. Maybe we can also put a link up to that, uh, to race and place. That's the title you said, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Great book. Cool. We'll put that up there as well. And is there, I mean, is there a, is there anything else, a blog? I, I mean, you got a Pinterest board you want us to look at? What do you, what do you have? <laughs> no, I mean, I think uh, you can find me on Twitter and uh, you can check out the work that we're trying to do here in South Bend at jubileesouthbend.com. Uh, and that's got my contact information there. So I'd love to, love to be in conversation with folks. Great. Great. Next time I'm in, uh, next time I'm out of a Packers game, I'll be sure to come by. Uh, and hang out. Right. Um, <laughs> unlikely, but, but hey, if you're ever in Atlanta or down in Georgia, I don't know if you do much traveling, but it'd be, it'd be great to connect in person. But thanks again, Adam. Um, listeners, go Absolutely. check this out. Becoming a Just Church, link below, and uh, hope to see you on the next one.